This is an ABC podcast. And welcome, gladdies, potties and tweethearts to a, another week of LNL. Laura Tingle will not be reporting because she's repotting. Apparently her uh, aspidistra is in desperate plight, but uh, filling her role, as he does so wonderfully, is Bernard Keane. We'll be talking to Bernard shortly. Then Bessina Farbenblum is going to talk about Combating Migrant Labour Exploitation. You all remember the 7-Eleven scandal. Well, they're minor players in the scheme of things and it's a huge issue around the world. And finally, June Factor, author and social historian, will join us to tell us about the non-British aliens who served in World War II. But first, let's, uh, let's welcome Bernard... Bernard Keane from Crikey. The Senate is uh, counting is done. The final senators have been granted a spot. We're announced today and there are some interesting ones to watch. Let's begin, Bernard, by asking you to tell us about Senator Fatima Payman. Yeah, good evening, Philip. Yes, this is a, a, um, a pretty historic um, outcome over in Western Australia. For a start, Labor won uh, three Senate seats and uh, brings its representation in the West to uh, equal uh, with the Liberals, which is an unusual outcome for for the West. Uh, it's been a long time since uh, the West was 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 uh, supportive of Labor's aspirations. For a long time, Western Australia was a bit of a dead zone for Labor, but this most recent election has proved uh, pretty fortuitous for Labor, and that's extended all the way to a third Senate seat with... Australia's first Afghan-Australian senator, first, um, not a, not our first um, uh, Muslim senator, but first uh, Muslim senator to uh, wear a, a hijab. And Fatima Payman is um, a union organiser and also very, very young. She's only 27. Heavens so, above. Um, well, we should make the point that we're talking about her victory being announced on World Refugee Day. Very good timing. Yes, well, she's the, she's the, the daughter, well, she's a refugee herself. She arrived here um, as an eight-year-old with her father, who came to Australia as a refugee uh, from Afghanistan. And, um, look, I guess when, when politicians uh, use that line that they use so often, that Australia is the world's most successful multicultural nation. Well, this surely is what they're talking about. This is an you know, the enormously uh, successful outcome for a refugee family in one generation um, to be representing uh, a major party in in the Senate. So it's a, uh, it's uh, it's and it's part of I think Philip. It's part of a much broader outcome of in terms of diversity both across the House of Reps and in terms of and, and in the and in the Senate as well from this selection. Let the record show that the Afghanistan embassy tweeted about it. Indeed. And uh, and so they should. I mean given Australia's long role in that conflict, um, we probably can't count too many positive things from coming out of that uh, conflict for Australia. But um, uh, I guess time will tell whether how successful Fatima payment is going to be, but um, she certainly starts off with fairly, from fairly auspicious circumstances. Well, the good senator will be sharing the Senate chamber with one Pauline Hanson, who uh, sadly got back in, but of course famously wore a full burger into the chamber back in 2017. There's a, a possibility for friction. Yes. Uh, well, let's see how that particular dynamic plays out. But um, uh, as you said, Pauline Hanson squeaked back in just ahead of Amanda Stoker, uh, the Liberal National candidate um, from Queensland. But um, for a party that has made its name in more or less transferring its racial hostility or its its uh, general hostility from uh, Asian Australians to Muslim Australians, um, uh, I imagine Pauline Hanson will um, uh, 
have things to say about the presence of a hijab-wearing Muslim woman in the Senate, and um, and uh, hopefully her party will stand by the new senator. Uh, Talking to Bernard Keane, who's political editor at uh, my favourite website, Crikey, at the other end of the spectrum, Clive, Clive Palmer, finally got his money's worth, well, something for the squillion spent on the United Australia Party campaign. He got a Victorian senator in. He did. I mean, well done to Clive. He, he only spent tens of billions of dollars. He didn't quite spend as much as he did in twenty. 19, um, but uh, he certainly spent tens of millions of dollars in order to try and get um, someone into Parliament. Um, this time around, both both One Nation and Clive Palmer ran candidates uh, in every seat possible in the House of Reps, which is a, a tried and true tactic to maximise your Senate vote. And in the case of the Victorian Senate outcome, that has delivered us one Ralph Babbitt. I may be mispronouncing his name. My apologies to the gentleman if uh, if that's the case, a real estate agent and, dare I say it, conspiracy theorist who, until he looked like he was actually going to succeed in getting a Senate spot, had been claiming that um, the election was fraudulent and the whole thing was rigged. Um, that was a lie that's, that he that's dropped got a, when that's he got a, That's got a familiar ring to it. Where have we heard that before? Yeah, uh, I, I can't think where that uh, that line's been offered <laughs> before. But uh, um, but uh, as Senator Babbitt, as as uh, he will be, is uh, well, pretty much what you would expect from a United Australia Party candidate, really. A uh, an anti-lockdown activist, um, anti-vaccination mandate, um, conspiracy theorist, and um, uh, quite where he's going to go with those particular issues, I don't know. I mean, it's been a couple of years since we've had out-and-out conspiracy theorists in the in the Senate. We did have a, some back in the in the wild days of, of 2016 and thereafter when uh, Pauline Hanson's One Nation produced a, an array of rather interesting characters. But um, uh, welcome one, welcome all, I guess. We can thank the Libs for giving him their preferences. Yes, he got over the line courtesy of, of Liberal preferences. Um, so, um, I, look, we'll see how Senator... It, it, it's easy to write off someone like, like Ralph Babbitt in advance, given the views that he's expressed on his now deleted social media um, uh, accounts. Um, but I remember Ricky Muir, um, who made his way into the Senate um, several terms ago and initially looked like, um, well a figure who was made considerable fun of, but actually he turned out to be a pretty reasonable senator once he uh, found his feet and decided to move on from um, uh, any relationship with Clive Palmer. So who knows how these senators will um, uh, will actually perform once they're in the Senate. These but nonetheless, nonetheless, it should be uh, pretty good for Labor because it, it needs Greens and one other to get things passed. Yeah, the, the 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 result in WA and the very big result in the ACT uh, does make life considerably easier. In the ACT, David Pocock knocked off Zed the soldier. Um, uh, in the, the the tradition in the ACT is is that well, almost a rule in the ACT is that uh, Liberal and Labor split the two seats. Those seats only last for three years, by the way. They don't last for a full six years. Um, but uh, David Pocock, the former um, Wallaby captain managed the unprecedented feat of, of defeating the Liberal senator there. So that was one less for the Liberals and an extra Labor vote um, from WA means that uh, Labor will only need the Greens and then one extra in order to pass legislation. And that might be David Pocock. But it, um, might, also, uh, it might also be Jackie Lambie and her colleague. Yes, so uh, Jackie Lambie's uh, colleague, uh, one of, uh, uh, Tammy Tyrrell, I think her name is, running on a on the Jackie Lambie ticket, was successful uh, in Tasmania. Jackie Lambie did have a strong history of uh, of of backing Labor and voting against the then government uh, previously. And if she does continue that, then she's she and her colleague are likely to be a uh, you know potentially fruitful source. Um, of support. Uh, but as I said, 
look, the, the history of these micro parties is that they tend to split and fragment, and we've seen people elected on a on a on a micro party ticket before, particularly Clive Palmer, but others as well. And Jackie Lambie, of course, started off as a United Australia um, 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 senator some years back, and then uh, made her way to freedom, and uh, has since been a very very different. Um, character in the Senate. So it's going to be fascinating to see how this expanded, more independent-minded Senate um, uh, plays out, both in terms of how much Labor is able to get across the line in the Senate and how much these micro-parties are actually going to retain their coherence as well, time goes on. Well, talking about a major party, Labor's only been in a couple of weeks and it's already stuffed up the energy situation. Tell me uh, about the report from the Energy Security Board. Yeah, so the Energy Security Board's been around for a few years now. It was set up by Malcolm Turnbull. It's basically uh, a mechanism to keep a watch on our you know, total capacity uh, for, for the East Coast electricity system. It's called the National Electricity Market, but you know, it doesn't really include WA um, for obvious reasons. Now, today, the Energy Security Board produced a, a paper on, on an idea that's been around now for... Well, it's been around for some time, but in, in an active phase only um, only six months to a year, which is this idea of a capacity mechanism. Now, what that entails is the idea that um, the market operator or the market regulator sets up a system whereby providers basically bid for the um, the option to provide power on a sort of standby mode. So basically you say, I've got capacity to provide X number of gigawatts in a particular situation. Um, if you pay me for it, I will make it available. And that therefore can be kept in reserve for when we have situations like we've had um, in recent weeks, when either because prices are too high or because coal-fired power generators are falling over or um, Russia's invading Ukraine or all of those reasons, um, we need extra power. Now, that's all fine as far as it goes, and um, that you know, on the face of it, that doesn't seem to be particularly problematic. Where the big argument is, where the big argument has always been about a capacity mechanism is, what do you actually count as capacity, and what do you reward as a capacity? So if you take the approach that capacity should only be renewables and storage, then that's one kind of capacity mechanism. But if you take the view that capacity should include coal-fired power and gas-fired power, then that's a very different kind of mechanism because what it will entail, and this is the version that was pushed quite hard by Angus Taylor and Scott Morrison before their, uh, before their departure from government, is basically an idea that um, we'd all end up paying a little bit more in our power bills in order to enable coal-fired power stations and gas-fired power stations. I've got to, to, I've got to pull the plug on you, Bernard. We're out of time. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for that. Bernard Keane, political editor, Crikey. This is LNL on RN, operating on wind power. Some pretty interesting efforts around the world to prevent wage theft from migrant workers is our next story. Beloved listeners, you may remember a watershed case in 2015 involving a number of Australian operators of 7-Eleven stores who were exposed as grossly underpaying their workers, many of them migrants. Now, these operators later paid back more than $176 million in wages to over 4,000 workers, although uh, some suggest the figure should have been much, much higher. Not that Australia is alone when it comes to this terrible problem of wage theft. It's a global issue, of the most well-known being the abuse of migrant workers on construction projects related to FIFA's 2022 World Cup soccer in Qatar. So as borders around the world open up again and migrant students and backpackers 
travel in search of uh, opportunities, including here in Australia. My next guest says that now is the time to reset labour laws and to look at some of the global innovations helping migrants get paid properly. I'm joined by Bessina Farnblum, co-exec director of the Migrant Justice Institute and associate professor at the University of New South Wales Faculty of Law and Justice. Welcome to our little program, Bessina. What does global wage theft look like? What is its magnitude? We know now that wage theft, particularly among migrant workers, is the standard business model and it is deeply entrenched across a number of industries where migrant workers work in pretty much every region of the world. And it may be that the migrant is simply not paid for all the hours they worked or that they're paid below the legal wage, or it may be that the employer makes unlawful deductions from their wages or simply pays them correctly on the books and then requires them to go around the back and take some cash out of the ATM and hand it back to the employer. So there are a lot of different ways it happens, but it is strikingly common across most jurisdictions around the world. So it's not a few bad apples, it's across the board, it's ubiquitous. And this is the problem. I think it's often thought of that it's the few bad apple employers and that's why most governments or pretty much all governments haven't been able to get a handle on it because if you treat it as a few bad apples, you don't fix the systems that enable it to continue. And, of course, at its worst, it almost becomes a form of slavery. Now, there are mechanisms for workers to get paid, but the system itself doesn't work. What happens? So pretty much every country has mechanisms for migrant workers to recover wages, but they really don't work. Um, migrant workers can't make claims in the first place because they are so frightened that they will jeopardise their job or their visa if they speak up. Um, it's incredibly difficult for them to make claims in a foreign system without legal support. And many of them at the point that they feel they can make a complaint are about to go home. And then once they leave, it becomes impossible. Um, if they are lucky enough to make a complaint, it's very difficult for them to actually get a judgment because generally the burden rests on them to prove they weren't paid, which is very difficult. And then they are responsible for enforcing any judgment afterwards. So at every stage, they have these huge burdens to overcome, which is just impossible for the average migrant worker. I remember some years ago, we did a story on the on the way companies sometimes magically vanish. Yes, and we've seen a lot more of that during COVID, unfortunately, and so many of these migrant workers were either just sent home as borders closed without their wages or the company they worked for liquidated and then there was nobody left to cover their wages. I, is the term Phoenix Company appropriate? I think that was, that was employed right. in the past. Okay, has the amount of money been adequately tracked? Well, this is also a big part of the problem. There's no government in any part of the world that has any sense of the magnitude of wage theft. Um, there's almost no data and there's certainly no data on how migrant workers or, in fact, any vulnerable workers are accessing these mechanisms for recovering their wages. So I think government isn't really able to make evidence-based decisions on what's going to work or not work because they and business really have no idea about the scale or how, how this is all happening um, and who, if anybody, is actually able to make claims. So if it's hard to make the, that diagnosis, it must affect the... Well, it must add to the difficulty of creating a cure. And, of course, talking about... Uh, well, medical terms, the situation must have been made worse during COVID. It did get much worse during COVID for many of these workers. There was one study done of Indian workers in the Gulf, about 2,500 of them, and around 40% said they were repatriated before they had received any of their wages and it became pretty much impossible for them to get their wages back once they were home. Um, and we saw so many businesses, you know, obviously suffering financially and some of them going out of business. 
Um, and for many migrant workers who went home, they couldn't then get back to get their wages. So the problem became really acute during COVID, although it had been there for a number of years before that. There's been traditionally very little interest on migrant workers in Australia. So in your 20 years of research, have you seen any shifts I mean, it's interesting. Australia really hasn't acknowledged that it had migrant workers for some time. We've had a focus on, on permanent migration, but that really changed over the past few years. But our our migrant workforce are generally in the shadows. They're at the back of the kitchen. They're on the farms. They're cleaning the offices late at night and haven't really been visible during this period. And I think it was really sort of the 7-Eleven moment where it was exposed that this was um, a significant problem and that it was systemic. And that's when we did at the first large study of um, about 4,500 temporary visa holders at that moment and found that a third were getting paid less than half the minimum wage. I, I, I remember the cruelty when we told uh, told these people just to go home during COVID that we weren't uh, going to look after them. And I think that that's really for, for my, we did a survey again of over about 6,000 migrant workers during COVID and we asked them their sort of open responses during that time and we received thousands of comments of just the deep hurt that they felt having been part of the community and having contributed for so long and then basically being treated like a commodity and not as a person and being told to leave at that point. And I think that going to take time to repair that damage. Let's let's go back to 2015 and the 7-Eleven case uh, I mentioned when introducing you. Uh, was that a, a consequence of whistleblowing? How did that happen? I mean, what's particularly interesting about that case is that over the years that that had been going on, the sort of systemic underpayment, um, only a handful of those workers had ever approached the labour regulator, the Fair Work Ombudsman, and it's quite revealing. And I think that case was really, you know, the tip of the iceberg in terms of companies doing similar things. They were not the only ones. Um, they were the ones that got caught. Um, and really it was just the result of a, an industrious person who went around with a few workers to um, create a story that was then revealed by the papers. And once they started digging, they realised how deep that iceberg went, it, that, that really those few workers were the tip and that this was throughout all of the franchises, um, this was a standard business model. There are almost as many 7-Eleven gas stations as there are sets of traffic lights. Are they behaving <laughs> Are they behaving better these days? Well, actually, 7-Eleven um, made an extraordinary effort to get wages back to those workers. So in some ways, it's a little unfortunate for them that they have become emblematic of wage theft in Australia because they're pretty much the only company that has invested in actually trying to get money back to these workers. And as you said, they paid back over $170 million um, in wages. But there are many other companies that have been caught and paid a pittance to a very small number of workers. So 7-Eleven um, so yeah. did the right thing, but others aren't following their example. No, and there's no public scrutiny or no real consequence um, for not doing this properly. And I think this is one of the big problems with migrant workers. Obviously, they don't vote. They, they don't necessarily have powerful allies and their lives and their work are not really visible. And so when this isn't done properly, there aren't a whole lot of people who are sufficiently upset about it to really drive change within government. So many of the, the workers that built the hotels and the stadia and other facilities around the world are still unpaid for wages and, as, as you point out, were sent home during COVID and they haven't recovered the wages that they're owed and, and now, I guess, never will. No, and that's pretty much standard for migrant workers who are underpaid. I mean, we when we did this survey of, of the 4,500 migrant workers in Australia, 91% of those who were underpaid did nothing. And, and that's pretty much what we would have expected to find. We know they don't speak up. They're too frightened of losing their visa um, or it's just too hard to make a claim. Okay, now let's look at potential good news. You and your colleague Laurie Berg have released a report which looks into what you see as innovations across the world. Can you tell me about some of the, the more interesting ones? 
Sure. I mean, so we realised that despite this being a very common problem with similar features all over the world, um, advocates and governments and lawyers were not looking at what was happening overseas to try to sort of learn any good practices. So we set out to do this study to find some promising initiatives um, showing that this situation isn't inevitable. Um, And a number of those really try to shift the burden away from the migrant worker onto business or government to address wage theft. And obviously, it's very unfair um, to rely on the most vulnerable party, the migrant worker, to enforce labour laws. So, for example, in Belgium, the employer has to prove that it paid the worker correctly rather than the worker having to prove they were not paid, which is extremely difficult. And it sounds very simple, but it's very important. Um, and there are a number of other cases that have shifted the burden this way. For example, in New York and New Jersey, um, it's assumed that if a worker loses their job or has some other consequence after they report wage theft, that that was, empl- that was retaliation by the employer. And then the employer has to prove that it was not retaliation. Again, extremely difficult for a worker to show that an employer retaliated. Um, there are some other great examples where Um, Other businesses in a supply chain can be held responsible for paying the workers' wages if their employer doesn't pay. Um, For example, in a number of jurisdictions in Europe and in in New York, even the 10 largest shareholders of a public company can be held liable for wages owing to the employees, which well, that, is kind that, of an extraordinary idea. <laughs> that's great stuff. I like the sound of that. You also say that as well as New York and New Jersey making uh, retali- employer retaliation a criminal misdemeanour offence, that something like this has happened in Victoria? So in Victoria, wage theft is now a criminal offence. And and that was really interesting because it was at a time where the the federal labour regulator really was not getting a handle on this. And the Victorian government said, well, we want jurisdiction to deal with this. And the way we're going to do it is to create a new criminal offence of wage theft because that is a state issue. And then we're going to create a wage theft inspectorate that goes after those employers engaging in wage theft. Um, So we now have a really powerful body in Victoria that is doing that job um, in in sort of a much more creative and aggressive way, I guess, than than we've seen at the federal level. We've talked about the abuse of workers in the Middle East on those uh, large construction sites in the UAE. Tell us about mobile labour courts. I love this example that we found. And I should say all of the data we have is government data. It's very difficult to get independent confirmation. But they have set up um, a bus that travels around to work sites with really large numbers of migrant workers. And obviously in the UAE, those could be quite remote. And then all of the workers at that site are invited to come and make claims um, to the judges who are travelling on that bus. And the judges then go to the employer on the spot and force (laughs) the employer to pay the workers. And we've heard anecdotally that the workers love this, not just because they can get their wages, but because the bus is air conditioned. (laughs) And so there's a long line of workers waiting to spend an hour in the air conditioned bus in the UAE, but that within a couple of days, they've actually got their wages on the spot. Tell me about the Hot Goods Act. This is another one that we we loved in the US and it's an extremely powerful tool and basically it allows the US government to stop um, goods from moving if the wages haven't been paid. So, for example, if there are sort of crates of blueberries that are about to travel and the employer has not paid the workers' wages, those goods are frozen. And obviously, with perishable goods, a day or two means you lose the whole value. So, those entities that are waiting for the blueberries are suddenly incredibly motivated to make sure the workers get paid. That would put the fear of God into people in the agriculture business in Australia who are misbehaving? I think so. And I guess this is part of um, really the the examples that were the most promising were those that created real commercial consequences for businesses of not dealing with this, not just fines or, you know, a a reprimand or slap on the wrist if you're not doing the right thing. And I think this is where government needs to get much more creative. I learned from you that some US states and cities can actually stop a business operating if they've been naughty. 
That's right. And again, it's, you sort of see these more progressive cities and states trying to find a way that they can get involved where they think that the federal government isn't doing this well enough. And there's a great example from Santa Clara County in California where a restaurant's um, food health permits can be suspended until they've paid the worker wages. And actually the, the health authority can, can shut the restaurant down for five days with a big sign in the window explaining why they've been shut down until the workers' wages are paid. And it sort of gives them jurisdiction where they wouldn't have had it otherwise to deal with labour issues. That's name and shame, isn't it? What about technology? That's a much more modern notion. Can that play a part in helping? It definitely can, and it's really come to the fore during COVID, as in many other areas. Um, and there are a number of instances where, for, for example, um, workers have been able to file claims once they've gone home or to, to provide video testimony. Um, in Hong Kong, there was a case brought to allow workers who returned to Indonesia to testify by, by video, which was unheard of. It was sort of once workers left, that was it. Their claim was finished. Um, and... In the Gulf states, actually, there are now digital courts um, that are enabling workers to do everything from filing to testifying and receiving judgments all online. I still love the buses the best, I think. <laughs> now, you see now as an opportunity, a golden opportunity to change the system. Well, I think particularly in Australia, you know, we've we've seen the departure of a very large number of our migrant workers. Most of the backpackers went home. A lot of the international students did too. And we're seeing great demand now for migrant workers to be brought in to fill labour shortages. But the, it, there is a real moment of reset now before all of those new migrant workers hit our shores. And obviously, we've got a, a new government now with some fresh ideas um, and there's a lot that we could be doing. Again, thinking really creatively and treating this as a systemic issue, which it is. So the fundamental principle has to be creating an expectation among employers that they're not going to get away with it. Thanks for coming on, Bessina. Bessina Farbenbloom, co-executive director of the Migrant Justice Institute and associate professor at the University of New South Wales Faculty of Law and Justice. She and her colleague Laurie Berg co-wrote the report Migrant Workers' Access to Justice for Wage Theft, a global study of promising initiatives. Next, beloved listeners, the non-British subjects who served in World War II but didn't fire a shot. We've heard uh, many stories of Aussie soldiers' exploits in the Second World War, but our next guest has uncovered some of the stories not yet told, including the story of her own dad. June Factor is a highly respectable folklorist, social historian and writer, and until now she specialised in uh, children's folklore and language, but the story of her father, Saul Factor, led her to uncover the tales of men like her dad who had to fight for the right to defend this country. Her new book is called Soldiers and Aliens, Men in the Australian Army's Employment Companies During World War II, and it's published by Melbourne University Press. June, welcome to the Little Wireless Program. Thank you, Philip. Tell me about your dad an anti-fascist Polish Jew. That's right, and a passionate man, a man who, once he had a, a conviction, would you know go to the ends of the earth for it, I think. Um, he, uh, the, the family had come out to Australia not very long earlier. Uh, my father in 1938 and my mother with infant me in her arms in 1939. Uh, and the reason that they came to Australia was because my father took um, what was going on in Germany seriously, which, oddly enough, was not as common as you might perhaps imagine. Um, he 
foretold a war. He wouldn't have been the only one, but there were a lot of people who said, oh, you know, that's the Germans, you know, that'll that'll go away. But, of course, it didn't go away. Um, but that's why that's why I'm here and alive and speaking to you. Now, there were many refugees like your dad who uh, managed to escape before the worst ravages of the war, whether they were fleeing Hitler or Mussolini, but also numerous refugees from Asia. Yes, indeed. Um, and this was a country that had quite a solid and unbending it seemed unbending, white Australia policy. But once the war itself broke out, that policy was somehow shifted and we took in, Australia accepted many, large, large number of Chinese seamen whose ships were stranded basically near us and we were the nearest uh, piece of safe land for them to come to. We also had what are now called Indonesians uh, who were here. Uh, so the, the war, because of the special circumstances of it, actually changed ultimately forever attitudes to some parts of Asia. Now, I've told very often on the program the De Niro story, and Ben Lewin and I collaborated on what would become a, a remarkable miniseries, but uh, not all of them came willingly, did they, June? No, not all of them came willingly, um, but the majority did. And indeed, the majority were already here when the war broke out. Uh, and some had been here a long time. There are um, aliens, as they were called then, and we still use that term, foreigners. They were people who had been here um, sometimes, you know, their grandparents had come to Australia, but they were they had remained Greek or Italian or whatever particular uh, nationality that they came from, and they'd never got nationalised. They'd never got Australianised, shall we say, um, legally. Uh, but they were nonetheless either willingly or unwillingly, they became part of the military service, particularly the army. One of the, one of the refugees composed a song at that detention centre near Liverpool in the UK, and I uh, can't resist reading it. We have been Hitler's enemies for years before the war. We knew his plan for bombing and invading Britain's shore. We warned you of his treachery when you believed in peace, and now we are his majesties most loyal internees. Pretty good. It's wonderful, absolutely. Well, I, I, I looked up some of the statistics. There were some. There were, in November 1943, there were 41 nationalities um, represented in across the military forces. Now, that's amazing, really, when you think about it. More than 3,000 men who were not originally a British citizens. And, of course, at its peak in June 42, there were more than 12,000 uh, people interned in detention camps around Australia. Yes, but these mob, this lot, are wearing the Australian military uniform, saluting the flag, being marched up and down. <laughs> uh, they are soldiers. They are absolutely soldiers. They were never sent overseas. And I think that it's interesting. It was never quite clear whether there was any intention to ever send them. But there's quite clearly a concern expressed at the highest levels that they would not be safe were they to be sent overseas. And I found that very interesting, that there was actually a concern for their well-being. I'm talking to June Factor. And, of course, we should point out that we're talking about scholars and peasants, musicians, factory workers, commos, royalists, Jews, Catholics, animists and atheists. You've got it all. <laughs> And they wanted yes. to fight Hitler, but uh, as you say, they weren't actually permitted to do it. So, uh, mind you, not not every Australian uh, wanted these refugees. There's a terrible letter 
you you quote that Menzies received in 1940. Tell us about that. Yes, I think it was from a woman, was it not? Um, yes, writing to 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 say that uh, uh, you know how could you you know allow these men when our our brave men are fighting? Um, you know the idea that they were somehow automatically enemies. Of course, a number of them, uh, many hundreds, were of. Uh, German or Austrian or Italian nationality, but that didn't make them fascists. <laughs> of course not. And I've got to quote this letter. I am not a vindictive woman, she wrote to Menzies. These aliens are God, God's creatures just the same as we are. All the same, I sincerely trust that a U-boat gets every one of them which, of course, is exactly what happened to uh, the De Niro boys on their previous voyage. But not everyone was afraid of the strangers. You tell a lovely story of the relaxed attitude Australian soldiers who guarded the men on the trains on the way to the camps. Yes, that's ent entered folklore. I've, uh, I did a lot of oral history, Philip, and uh, I kept being told, from the, particularly from... The, the the men of that of a particular company, uh, a variation of the same story of being in the train and the Australian next to them says, want to smoke, mate, or, you know, offer them a, a, some bread and cheese or something. Uh, it's almost well, one, one of them. One of them said, "I'm going for a piss. Hold the rifle." Exactly. That's my favourite too. <laughs> yes, exactly. And um, so many of them. I suspect that whether everyone is true, I am not sure. But that the general re relationship of what you might almost call comradeship between these Australian soldiers who are almost having to act as guards over these foreigners, treat them with immense collegiality, really. I mean, they, you know, they, they must have taken one look at them and realised that whatever the enemy looked like, it didn't look like these blokes. Well, when Ben Lewin and I were working on what became the miniseries uh, De Niro, we found lots of those stories. They were quite delightful, the interactions between the alleged guards and these uh, terrible prisoners. Yes. Now, the government's attitude to the aliens changed uh, when Japan entered the war in December 41 with the attacks on Pearl Harbour, Hong Kong and the Malay Peninsula. Yes, uh, the war came much closer to Australia and the danger for Australia was more, was more imminent. And the need for men in various arms of the service clearly became more urgent at the same time. I mean, there were over 3,000 of these alien men uh, in these employment companies, and they came from about 41 nationalities I've counted up. That, I didn't think there were that many nationalities in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, while these men wanted to fight, they weren't exactly fighting fit, were they? Oh, no, they certainly were not. I, I remember my mother telling me that my father, who was a, a not a very tall man, not a very hefty man, and certainly not a muscular man, uh, was, was a remarkably fit in that kind of way in the sort of muscular way as a result of his time in the army. It didn't last, of course. He went back to the sort of occupations that he had before the war, none of which meant you had to move your muscles in any energetic fashion. Uh, but, it, yes, it was, it was a real shift in life. And for many men, and I think particularly older men, it wasn't easy. Well, I'm sure your dad's physicality would not have terrified the the enemy, but of course it didn't matter. The government uh, wouldn't let them serve in any military or military-related capacity. Instead, they set up employment companies. What jobs were they sent to do, June? One of the major jobs is loading and unloading trains. 
you've got to think that at this time, the main ways in which armaments and men and food and everything, really, there were only two ways. Well, there were three ways it could go. By sea, that was pretty well out. The Japanese had U-boats and they were near the Australian coast and going to sea was the very opposite of what anyone could do safely. That left rail and road. The roads weren't great in those days. The cars are not like today. Um, so the trains became an absolutely essential means of transporting both men and supplies and armaments. And one of the ironies was that the men in the employment companies were often loading or unloading rifles and other ammunition, even though they were never armed. Of course, they were also kept busy digging trenches, repairing roads, driving trucks loaded with military equipment. They were fulfilling some pretty important jobs. Oh, extremely. They also worked on the wharves. I've often wondered, I've never been able to find out exactly what the Wharfies Union thought of this. Well, the Wharfies Union was good, solid commos, of course. I think they would have been vaguely, <laughs> vaguely sympathetic. But well, as I'm you, glad, as glad you point out, this was hard yakker and they'd go in skinny and they'd come out strong. Exactly. Yes, indeed. Yes, I think I, I, my mother once commented that my, my father was physically stronger during that period than at any other time that she ever knew him. And, of course, the um, the feeling among the men in the companies, they came from so many backgrounds. Did they get on very well? They got on remarkably well. They shared tents together. They marched together. They lived clo in close proximity all the time. Um, there were 41 nationalities spread throughout the employment companies. That's a lot of different languages, a lot of different cultures and religions. Um, but despite and, their backgrounds, whether they were Yugoslavs or Italians or Greeks or Jews, they got on pretty good. They got on surprisingly little instances of, of any problem. I mean, they mightn't get on very well with the officers, for example, or some of the officers that varied. Um, and, in fact, in one company, the, the army had to send down some inspectors to see what was going on because the men were, in, uh, you know, not exactly revolting, <laughs> but they were complaining. June, um, how on earth did they train them? Well, you know, for example, marching. How did, when, when so few <laughs> spoke English? Well, it's, there's a lovely story which I think I've put in the book of, oh, I forget which company it was now, but the, the officer taking them marching wanted them to sing, you know, because it keeps them in rhythm. <laughs> well, the only songs they knew were in German. <laughs> and he said, they said, but we only know songs in German. And he said, sing them. So they're, they're singing First World War German songs. <laughs> there was a really rich cultural life, wasn't there? Singing, reading and uh, sharing ideas and politics. Tell us about Eric Liffman, for example. Uh, Eric Liffman was one of a number of, of them. But for some of them, it was actually an education. I can't remember now if that was true for Eric. But their experience in the army, which the army, among other things, had a very significant educational arm. It circulated books. It had classes in English. It did all sorts of rather wonderful thing. June, the reason I brought Eric Liffman up is because I learned from you that he played the lead role of Prince Charming in his company's musical uh, Sergeant <laughs> Snow White <laughs> yes. and it was wildly successful and raised a lot of money for charity. That's right, they did. They came to Melbourne and performed in Melbourne and uh, were, were their theatrical Great theatrical successes. You also have to remember, of course, Philip, there were some very talented people. 
uh, in these companies. I don't like to raise the issue of sex, but I feel I must. Local town halls held dances for servicemen where they could uh, meet young nurses and land army girls. They could. And... uh, a number of them, uh, as in my, from my interviewing, I realised, particularly those who came from Germany, Austria and Italy, chose to come from somewhere else if they were asked at a dance by a very nice girl. And where did you come from? Because those were the enemy countries and it was they were, so they would come from somewhere else. They could come from Poland or Czechoslovakia, or, you know, they could pick a country. The first, the, the young woman uh, was only amazed that they could speak some English. Now, June, what happens to these blokes at the end of the war? In some ways, not all that different to what happened to the Australians at the end of the war. Well, that is different in some way, of course. Some go back. Some choose to go back to wherever was once home. Many do not. Well, the Chinese, of course, were forced to leave, weren't they? Oh, yes. There were ships waiting for them to take them back. That was the attitude of the Australian government. Not what you would think a very grateful attitude. And similarly, the Indo- what we now call Indonesians were also sent back because they were Asian and definitely not suitable for this European white society, apparently. But your father's experience was pretty common, wasn't it? You go back, you start afresh with your family and have a new life. Exactly. That was what most of them did. And the interesting thing is that most of them did not choose to form or belong to organisations that were related to their army period. There was one group that did, but most of them joyously, happily, with great relief, returned to their, what they would call their normal lives. I'd like to ask, how did your father end up? Now, I know the answer because, of course, your um, radicalism, your uh, subversive nature had to come from somewhere. He he became an anti-war activist. Oh, he did much later, passionate anti-war activist, my father. Yes, yes, my, my father really wanted to make the world a better place. And he did what he could within the limitations of one life. He didn't do badly. Well, he gave a talk to the Campaign for International Cooperation and Disarmament at a celebration of his 80th birthday, which was held in Melbourne, ooh, in uh, 1986. That's right. That was one of the organisations that he supported passionately. He was very much arguing that it was tremendously important for societies to work for peace and not to allow another war to occur. Well, you've done him proud and indeed all the alien soldiers. I've been talking to Dr June Factor, author, historian, Honorary Senior Fellow at the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne, Soldiers and Aliens, is appropriately published by Melbourne University Press. Thanks, June. Thank you, Philip. On our next Asia Pirouette with Bruce, as we look at the United States back in very dangerous waters, a new report on how Australia should shape its Pacific relationships and wolves or re-wolving, to be precise, in Yellowstone National Park. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.